Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth or TWIP is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com and Audible dot com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash TWIP. And Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to Squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. This Week in Photo is also supported by the TWIP podcast app for the iPhone and iPod Touch. It's available on iTunes. For more information, head over to ThisWeekInPhoto.com. People Magazine angers some photographers, the Adams Trust litigates, and Canon ups the ante with a 120-megapixel sensor. It's Tuesday, August 24, 2010, and this is TWIP. Welcome back to TWIP, your weekly source of photographic inspiration. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson, and joining me today on the show are Mr. Joseph Lenaski and Liana Lehua. Hey, guys. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> I love the aloha. Hey, Liana, so the aloha obviously comes from the fact that you are from Hawaii, but uh, where have you been? I interviewed you a couple times, and you know, you, you, you were off the radar. Give us an update on what Liana Lehua has been up to. Oh, just hanging out. I thought I wanted to travel the world, go surfing. I'm kidding. I wish. <laughs> I probably f- could fit in one of your bags, Joseph. I wouldn't mind doing that, you know. She's just pre- drop me she's off pretty small, Joseph. She, she could fit in one of your low-pro bags, seriously. <laughs> Compact made for travel. <laughs> yes. And I eat very little. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I took some time off to, to take care of some personal stuff and uh, just kind of stopped doing my little online stuff as you know i was doing girls gone geek before and yeah. been involved in a couple things and um uh just spent the last year really just kind of get healthy again and now i'm back very cool well, welcome back to the fray well wow, thank you yeah so we had uh we had lunch yesterday we were geeking out i think people we had lunch at uh, bj's out in front of apple <laughs> and uh, liana and i were geeking out with our iphones taking pictures of salt and pepper shakers and and <laughs> doing telling everybody on twitter and foursquare and wherever else that where we were using location services so we were liana is a is a bona fide geek gotta tell you <laughs> <laughs> this is lovely then we realized then i actually freaked out because there was somebody checked into the same place we found out at the same time i went uh-oh Maybe I didn't really want to do that. I've never had that happen before. <laughs> was that was that Facebook or or Foursquare that you were checked in on? Facebook places. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that was weird. That is weird. So yeah, you check in someplace. You're like, oh, now everybody that that is following me knows that I am here. <laughs> Did I really want to check in here? I don't know. Yeah. So speaking of having legions of people following you online, Joseph, you just went on a trip, uh, a coast to coast drive, and you documented the whole thing. How would, That's right. Give us give us an overview of how that went. Is it was it everything you dreamed it would be? <laughs> it was. It was really cool. Just the the background is I, for various reasons. I'm spending some time on the other coast. I'm in South Carolina right now, and to do this trip, I decided instead of flying and shipping all of my gear, I would drive and and carry it all. And if I was going to make that trip by car, I figured I may as well turn it into a bit of a photo adventure. So I spent ten days. Which you know really isn't that long. You know we know that the Fenwicks did the drive in a month through Route 66, and even they thought that they had uh, more to see and do than they had a chance to do. But over those ten days, 
I drove and stopped to shoot whenever I wanted to and tweeted a whole bunch along the way and blogged a bunch along the way, and I'm actually still updating. I still have photos. I've only gotten as far as um, I think I'm just about to upload the first pictures from from uh, Tennessee. That'll be the next batch to go up. So That's nice. there's there's still quite a few to go. But, yeah, it was quite the trip. It was a lot of fun, and I had a lot of people following on Twitter and even met a few uh, Twitter f- listeners, Twitter followers along the way. And we got put up one couple of nights at somebody's house in uh, in Oklahoma City. Look at that. And, really- yeah, I know. And, and I had dinner along the way wow. with people. It was really fun. It was really, really cool. You need to make a book out of that, man. I mean, that that sounds like an adventure that was designed for a blurb or some kind of book like that that you can put online and let people, you know, pull it down at will. Yeah, I was thinking about actually even doing a small print book, like out of, uh, out, you know, out of uh, Aperture and maybe even selling that because I do, did get a lot of really nice photos that I'm really happy with. I was up at sunrise pretty much every day. So I shot wherever I was. I shot at sunrise, uh, shot a lot of sunsets and obviously just a lot of scenics along the way. And it all worked out really well. It came out really nice. So, yeah, I'm thinking about putting together a book from that. Yeah, you definitely should. And in the meantime, where can folks go to, to check out the shots? Confessionsofatravelljunkie.com. Very cool. All right. Well, let's move right along, folks. Uh, first of all, a quick nod to our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. They're the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. They've got more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many of the New York Times bestsellers. And for listeners of this podcast, our friends at Audible are offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to sample their service. And, uh, you know, I'm listening to a ton of books right now it's it's interesting that i find myself i think i've gone through like 15 books in the last three months or so because it's because i listen to them during my downtime not that i have all that much downtime but you know i run and i walk (laughs) a lot but you know while i'm doing those things i can knock out a good portion of a book and then i also listen uh like before i go to sleep and put the headphones in and then you know kind of kind of fall into la la land listening to these books so it's it's an awesome way to kind of uh use that time when your brain isn't occupied doing something else and joseph i know you're you're into these books as well are you what are you listening to right now well i'm into them now you know i wasn't really ever much of a listener of audiobooks because i just don't spend that much time in the car i've never really had that much downtime but on this cross-country drive as you might imagine uh, I had a little bit of time to myself, and so I did get into it, and I listened to two. I listened to one called The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which I know is uh, it's kind of all the rage right now. It's quite quite a bestseller, and that was over 16 hours long, which is a really good long book for a drive like I had. Uh, and another one called The Overton Window by Glenn Beck. That one, that one in itself was nearly nine hours, and both of those were fantastic, and honestly, they really made the drive Go a lot more, a lot more easier, you know, a lot more pleasurable. <laughs> now, were those those? I, I take it weren't narrated by the authors; they're narrated by professional voiceover artists, right? Right, definitely. Yeah, I think on both of them, or at least in the Glenn Beck one, he came on. Glenn Beck was in there in the very beginning and at the very end to give kind of an intro and outro. That was kind of cool too. That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Liana, have you? Do you ever listen to audiobooks? Or are you uh, are you more of a podcast type person? I do. No, actually, well. Before we got uh, on air here, we were talking about uh, driving. I was driving today, this morning, back, and uh, got through part of the way through a book. And I was actually a little bit bummed. I kind of wish my trip was a little bit longer because <laughs> I only got like part of the way through a book. Now I have to take another long drive to finish the rest of it. <laughs> you could have just kept going like, and, and bounced off of San Diego and came back up to L.A., right? <laughs> I was thinking about doing that. Well, now that I know Joseph is in um, South Carolina, 
Yeah, there you I go. Did it that way. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you get quite a few books out of the way with that drive. Yes, absolutely. All right, uh, let's let's jump right into the news. The first story up is People Magazine. Um, they they recently launched a brand new shiny iPad application for the for the magazine, but it looks like they're hitting some trouble and being stalled by some photographer disputes. Now, um, Joseph, did you, did you have a chance to look over this? And uh, you know, I have a couple questions that I wanted to throw out to you guys in terms of just licensing in general because it you know as i sat back and and kind of digested the story it kind of seemed like yeah you got on the one hand you got traditional media print all that kind of stuff and then on the on the other hand you have full-on digital which in my brain up till recently was the uh the internet right so anything internet related but now you have this kind of funky digital area in between where the ipad sits where it's it's an app and it's pulling data down now my question to you guys is, Joseph, you take it first. Do you think that we're in a new licensing world and that the folks that are licensing these images out need to rewrite to allow for these devices that are neither connected or, or uh, you know, dead tree based? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the thing with licensing is it really comes down to how clean, how specific your contract is. right? And if you have a licensing agreement that simply says you're allowed to publish my image, then you know, pretty much all bets are off. They can publish it however they like. But when you get into very specifics, like it's this is publishable in a print magazine of X circulation in X regions and so on, um, and then digital publishing could be you know, specifically for the web. Just depends on how how specific it is. But if you're going to get into this whole brave new world, then yeah, absolutely, it's to the photographer's advantage to have that license be very specific, and so that when something new like the iPad does come along, uh, that the publishers do have to relicense. Yeah, and, yep. you know, and there's certainly arguments on both sides of it. Absolutely, and I can see both sides of the argument. But being a photographer, I'm certainly on the side that says, well, if you are going to use this as another way to make money, which effectively is what it is, then you know, hey, I want my cut too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, things change, so you can't, you can't. I don't think. Yeah, you're right. I don't think you can shoehorn everything into rules that pertain to things that weren't even in existence when the rules were made. Right. Right. So, so Liana, you know, the, looking at say, let's take for example, iStock photo and they've got a gazillion images online they've got their own licensing i haven't i haven't uh, gone through the licensing to sort of read if it covers this kind of management but i would imagine they have a piece in there that just covers digital distribution um and that sort of thing in fact i'm sure they do so right. d- do you think that covers these devices explicitly or do, do does a stock agency need to do something different you know, actually, I haven't read it in that much detail. I'm a consumer. I'm kind of on the I'm on the Alex side. I consume versus Nicole side, where she actually takes the photos. So I haven't read it that in that much detail. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really do think stock agencies definitely in news play, newspapers as a consumer for the iPad uh, for just any kind of uh, media like that. I'm I'm charged a subscription rate. So just like Joseph was saying, especially if they're going to make additional money from it, definitely the photographer and anybody should be compensated for it. I think they really do need to look at it. And, you know, of course, as a consumer, I'd say, you know, anything that'll save me money would be great. But um, I also believe in artists getting paid for their work. So, yeah, yeah, I definitely believe they need to to, to look at at this. And and, and I'm actually glad i mean I, I like seeing new things come to things like the ipad so that we can see what's going on and people can get really excited about it but i also don't want to see it at the sake of photographers or anybody creating content not getting paid for the work they do right 
Now, Joseph, you've you've got a you've got a, a volume of work or a body of work online, um, and I would assume some of which you've licensed to different areas. What what happens if you've you know you say you've licensed something for someone to put on their website or something like that, and mm-hmm. then suddenly you see it in an iPad app? Now, would you would you get upset about that, or would you you know how would how would you proceed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If, if it wasn't licensed for that, like I said, it comes down to how specific, how clean your contract was to begin with. If the contract that you have with that client doesn't specify you know, iPad use or use in something like that and something that could be construed as that, then, yeah, absolutely, that's a point where you have to call up the client and say, hey, you, know, you don't have uh, permission to do this, but I'm happy to license it to you to do that, so here's an agreement. You know, sign this and send me a check and we'll all be good. Yeah, see, that's, that's the crux, I think. That, that's the part that I'm, I'm having problems getting my brain around because – you know, looking at my iPad, if I pull up an image that's been licensed for the web and I pull it up in Safari on my iPad and then I launch an app that points to the same image and pulls that in. So is that different? Is that a different distribution because that because an app is pulling that image in rather than an app that Apple provided is pulling the image in? You know, what, where do you draw the line there? Well, I think that is a real that, that is a real differentiator right there because you're talking about you know, Safari is an app, right? Safari mm-hmm. is an app that pulls the images off the web. If you're making an app that all it does, all it is is a, a web browser with another logo on top of it, then perhaps there isn't any additional licensing needed because it really is just in the web. And anybody could see this exact same image, same layout, same everything else by just going you know, through Safari. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're selling an iPad app, like the, like the Time Magazine app, right? You would buy that. It was a self-contained full of the images, it was a different experience to looking at the images on the web or to looking at them in the magazine, then that was an app. That was a completely new method of distribution. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, you know, playing devil's advocate here, I wonder if, uh, you know, like, say, People Magazine, they could get around this by renaming the app the People Magazine Web Browser. <laughs> well, it depends know? on how it's doing it. Right? I mean, from what I understand, uh, you know, I'm not a People Magazine subscriber, but from what I've, I understand about this, they are giving the app away to free for free to people who are uh, People Magazine subscribers. So you have to be subscribed to the paper version of it to get the iPad version, yeah. which in itself just seemed silly, but that's you know, beside the point. So how are they actually delivering it? Is the iPad app that they're distributing, is it just a browser, or is it actually going to be downloading the content? It's there. There are very different, you know, very different ways of looking at it. So yeah, it's it's so interesting because and then things continue to change. So it's you know we're gonna we'll have all these new devices probably within the next twelve twenty four months or so, and you know the more rules will need to be written. So I think we, we're gonna have to have like a blanket sort of description of what digital distribution encompasses. You know, it's you know if the image lives on the internet and the device is pulling it from there, then maybe that's digital distribution. I don't know. Interesting stuff. All right, story number two. Um, we've talked about this before. I think we, we talked about it earlier when this was first happening, but the Ansel Adams mystery, I think, was the name of the, bo- the, the post that went <laughs> up before. Uh, those That $200 million worth of Ansel, I'm holding up quote fingers, Ansel Adams uh, negatives that, uh, that an agency, and who was it? It was Rick... Norsigian, I think is his name, uh, from PRS Media Partners. He's trying to uh, trying to sell them uh, the prints and posters from the from the negatives under the license or under the trademark of Ansel Adams. 
Um, and I don't think that they were planning on giving any other funds to the Ansel Adams estate. So it looks like it, uh, the Ansel Adams estate or the trust is suing over that, which makes sense. I'm surprised that it hasn't happened uh, before now. It just happened, a, a, what, a day ago or something as we record this. Now, the question, you know, not to, to crack this open again, but I am going to crack it open again. Um, what's the, <laughs> what would have been the correct course of action for Rick and the PRS media partners to take once they discovered these negatives? That's the, that's the piece that's bothering me. It's like, you know, if, if, you, if you subscribe to the whole do the right thing, you know, Spike Lee thing, whatever. You, when something happens, you know, you're if you if you just do the right thing, then everything should work out, right? Do you think the right thing was to, hey, I'm going to try to monetize these for two hundred million dollars, or what would have the right thing have been to get on the phone and call up the Ansel Adams Trust and say, hey, we have some images that we think may belong to your trust. Let's authenticate them and make sure they they if they are, then we can negotiate some sort of cash exchange and if they're not then we'll do something else you know what what do you got liana where do you fall on that is it are they do, did they do the right thing by just trying to monetize them for 200 million or were they being nefarious no. i don't think so i mean it that's like the um what is the name of that band vampire something mm-hmm. somebody bought a photograph yeah. at a garage sale mm-hmm. uh, for anybody that doesn't know, somebody bought a photograph for garage sale it ended up on an album cover a uh, photographer claimed to have taken that photograph, and now there's they're in court, I guess, trying to determine whether or not that photographer really owned the rights to that photo, and yep. the model's trying to sue. So, uh, same thing. I mean, it garage sale thing, and if you think, and you, they did all this studies to figure out who those, that beyond a reasonable doubt, I'm doing my quote fingers now from the article, um, that they are Adam, Adams, Ansel Adams' early work. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think it's, I don't know there are any laws around it. I would just think it would be common courtesy that, hey, you know, don't, just go out and sell these things. Let's talk to the Ansel Trust. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, that's my knee jerk as the right thing. But then again, you know, it's, I'm not a lawyer. And a lawyer may have advised to say, hey, you know, you, you, you know, it's $200 million. You know, <laughs> you, at least if you, if they sue you, maybe, you know, you sell them for $200 million and they have to, you have to pay $100 million. You're still $100 million ahead. So I don't know. Joseph, where do you fall on this? Well, I agree that they probably should have contacted them and say, look, we found these. We've spent, a lot of time and money validating that these are, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, as it says in the article, uh, Adams' early work. So uh, contacting them and saying, look, we found something that you guys might be interested in, I think would have been would have been pertinent. That would have been the right thing to do. And give them a chance to look at them and, and determine from, and on their own whether they're real or not. And that's a big part of the problem is that the Ansel Adams Trust is saying these aren't real. They are not Ansel's work. And so that's a huge part of it. And then I guess the second part of this is that this group is selling prints from these negatives and selling them I'm not selling them as Ansel's work because that's that's not the right phrasing but they are selling prints from it limited edition um, verified authentic for quite a large sum of money it was $7,500 for a darkroom print with a certificate of authenticity yeah. and you know which if it was an Ansel print if he sat in the darkroom and did it then you know of course that's well worth it and it's probably worth a heck of a lot more than that but as the trust is saying the print itself, uh, if it wasn't made by Ansel, then it just doesn't have the same value. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's an interesting argument, but I think what really comes down to right now is somebody needs to figure out whether these are actual Ansel Adams negatives or not. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how. I wonder how you can determine that without the actual photographer to say, "Hey, I shot that." That's a. It's an interesting quandary. I mean, we're definitely going to keep an eye on this as it as it unfolds, and we'll see where it where it ultimately nets out. 
All I have to say is karma is a big B word because, you know, regardless of whether or not these are Ansel's photos, you don't do that. Somebody's going to, that's coming back. (laughs) (laughs) That should be the title of the show. (laughs) Karma is a big B word. Um, So, uh, okay, so on to the next story as we we step out of this one. Uh, Story number three is about Nikon. And there's a couple of things I want to touch on here. They've announced some new bodies, a new D3100 consumer digital SLR and a new micro four thirds and four new, I'm sorry, new four new pro worthy lenses that go with it. This is a FX uh, series of lenses. So these are the, the smaller crop sensor lenses that go out. Um, so we'll we'll link to this in the show notes. Um, so Nikon's coming on strong on the consumer side, which is great, and still releasing nice new glass. Canon, uh, on the other hand, is innovating on the sensor side. So Twip listener Jeffrey Steadfast, he's at uh, on Twitter J Steadfast S T E D F A S T. Um, brought this to my attention uh, a bit ago and basically canon has created a 120 megapixel sensor so uh (laughs) i'm I'm looking this is the sensor fits in the same space it'll fit in a 1d so the 1d body so it's the same size as the sensor that's in their current digital slrs so i'm looking at this and i'm thinking a couple of things popped into my head a you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the demise of the point and shoot because everyone's shooting with with their iPhones and Android phones and all this stuff um, as they're that are replacing the point and shoot. So I sort of threw out the challenge: Is the point and shoot going to go away? Um, so the, with this one, when I saw this one one hundred twenty megapixel sensor, I'm like, well, does this mean the demise of the medium formats <laughs> now? So what we'll end up with in a couple of years is just camera phones and and digital slrs you know and everything else will be gone what, what do you guys think liana what do, you, what do you think do you think uh because canon has created this gigantic you know godzilla megapixel sensor that medium format cameras no longer matter uh no i mean uh, i don't know that's a really hard one because i don't shoot professionally and i mm-hmm. I, I don't i wouldn't have a need for uh, a medium format camera yeah. i mean i think the results, I guess, would be a little bit different, and then your workflow might be a little bit different. So, somebody who shoots medium format, unless, of course, you're shooting like digital back or whatever. Um, again, because I'm not shooting medium format, I'm not sure. But right, yeah. Um, so it's an unfair, you know, it's it's an unfair those, question yeah. to you because you haven't shot right. medium format. Right. So you went, so, but Joseph, I know I'm not sure if you you've used medium format cameras. Um, you may be in school, but you know, overall. You know, the, the main reason that people that you or one of the main reasons that you'd want to shoot medium format is for the number of pixels that you can create and the 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 raw size of the file to be able to uh, do fine professional retouching, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What what do you think of this? I mean, do you think if there's if you had a 120 megapixel sensor in one of your Canon cameras, do you think you would care about a medium format camera anymore? I, I think I'd care a lot less. There, there is still something else about shooting medium format. Um, generally, the the lenses behave differently. The light plays differently in the sensor. Just it, it's like the difference between shooting with a, a crop sensor and a full frame sensor. Mm-hmm. The image just looks different. There's a different quality to the image, and it's a lot more than just resolution. It's mm-hmm. uh, the size of the glass, the way the light's coming through the glass to a smaller sensor versus a larger one. The amount of the lens that you're actually using with your your on a crop frame sensor, you're just using the center of the glass, whereas on a full frame, you're using the whole thing. And you know, that plays into the larger formats as well. So things do just look different. Um, there's always the argument of if you're going to walk into a 
$100,000 commercial shoot, you need to be carrying a camera that says you're $100,000 a day photographer, not, you know, a, 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 the same camera that you can walk down to Best Buy and pick up. Mm-hmm. So there's there's always that part of it. But 120 megapixel, I mean, that's it, it's borderline ludicrous. And I don't think that this is something that they would build into a commercial product quite yet because it's just it's too big of a jump. The computers can't handle it. I can't even imagine opening something like that in Aperture and Lightroom and managing you know, one of them, sure, but 500 pictures from a day's shoot, it's yeah. insane. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think, I think you hit on an, an interesting point there, too, just in, in terms of optics. Yeah, I've been looking at this from a just a sensor size point of view, but optics on, on medium format cameras and even crop size, you know, because on medium formats, you get your, what, 645, you get your 67, you can go square, you know, and you, you have those different feels, and each one of those lends itself to different kinds of photography and different looks. So I guess the, 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 tr- the question is, even if this, if this camera or this sensor makes it into camera bodies, there's this price differential between the medium format backs or bodies and, you know, your run-of-the-mill digital SLR does i mean would you if as a medium format photographer say that's what you've been using forever and now you could just you know now all the lenses that you have for your digital slr will work fine you can get these gigantic images is the trade-off of those optics you know does it is it easy to take the handle you know if if i'm going to a digital slr is it okay just to say you know what it's so much cheaper i'm just going to go with it you know or just should you stay with the medium format i don't know did you did you see the small print there it looks like there's a, a little attachment that you could use it on the iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah, Apple Apple buys up the entire stock of 120 megapixel sensors from Canon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Just because I had to find out, I opened up Photoshop and uh, tried to create a new document at that size. Um, I found an article that talks about this sensor and the actual resolution of it. It's 13,280 pixels by 9,184 <laughs> pixels. And that is a 350 megabyte file in Photoshop. Um, so, you know, we're talking a fairly chunky I'm not take that here. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, can can cards even handle writing that fast? I, mean, <laughs> I was just say you have to take lunch. You take one photo of lunch. Oh, jeez. Wow. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well. There's a lot of things that would have to happen before that could become commercially viable. Like you know, exactly write speeds on the CF cards. Um, I mean, I haven't done the math here, but I would imagine that you're not going to be able to shoot 10 frames a second and actually have it write to the card. Yeah. But you know, if they've got the built-in memory in the in the cache for it, and I don't know, uh, it just I think it's not going to happen anytime soon. I, I don't think that the one D S Mark IV is going to have this sensor in it. I, I think I think maybe they're developing this for NASA and it's going to go up in the next Hubble. You know, <laughs> so you can, you I was going to say you end up having a setup that looks like a mainframe. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. All right, but hey, you know, I guess the bottom line is Canon is innovating and they've shown, you know, or, or apparently from this article, they're showing that they can create a 120 megapixel sensor if they wanted to. So. You know. Yeah, and we thought the megapixel wars were over. They are over. I think they're <laughs> so over. Um, all right, another quick nod to one of our sponsors. Uh, we're also brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. And like we've been saying over the, the past several episodes, they've announced this uh, this new concept of social widgets, where you can have a nater- native Twitter widget that allows you to have multiple accounts um, and filter by keyword and customize the look and feel of that widget so it integrates with your site. You can have a native Flickr widget and, and point multiple Flickr accounts at it so you can bring in images directly and make your, your website more dynamic, as well as just a native RSS 
widget that pulls in feeds from almost any other site that allows it on the web. So it's really interesting the way Squarespace is allowing you to bring in other sources of media from around the internet and integrate them seamlessly into your site. So the end result is a more dynamic website. Plus, you know, it's all wrapped into their easy-to-use UI that allows you to create and manage your, your website or blog and you know, pretty much anyone can use it as evidenced by the fact that Joseph. <laughs> How did I know that was coming? <laughs> you knew it was coming. No, no, but your your website, all joking aside, your website is 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 substantial and it's intricate. Um, and you've chosen Squarespace to be the underlying engine under it all, and it's still working fine as far as I've I've seen. Right? I mean, it's it's humming along yeah. and your user base is increasing exponentially all the time. So what? Uh, you know what's what's coming new on and the name of your site is what it's not not confessions of a travel junkie the aperture expert yeah, sure, com well actually both of those are are squarespace sites so confessions of a travel junkie that's squarespace but that's on the kind of lower end of the blog of the system it's um, probably the cheapest plan that they have or second cheapest plan they have uh, aperturexpert.com is on the top end of it and that's one that's the one that has user logins and users can create their own logins on there and that's the the kicker to get into that highest level of, uh, of membership. So if you want your users to be able to uh, sign up themselves, create their own logins and passwords, then you got to go for the, the full bore on there. But that's what this site is. It's based entirely off of Squarespace. Um, there's really no customization in here that's not the WYSIWYG stuff that you can do instead of Squarespace. It's really very, very cool. There's lots of HTML drop-ins from different things, you know, like a my Facebook feed that's on there is just HTML code grabbed from Facebook site and slapped into Squarespace in a in a HTML widget, and that's it. And yeah, it's uh, it's really straightforward, really easy to manage, and looks great. And I really like it. I'm very very pleased with it. It looks really nice. Yeah, oh, yeah, thanks. it is very slick. It's very slick. And I saw the I you know played with the the back end of Squarespace, and I've seen your site, Joseph. And it is it's really it is what they say it is. I mean, it's easy to use, and once you get your once you get going, you're you're set and ready to roll. It's a it's a yeah. powerful engine. Yeah, one of the things I always like to throw out to them is their support. Their customer support is fantastic. If you have questions, you uh, you know they fill out their support thing online, and they get back to you very very quickly. And the answers are always you know, easy to understand, easy to follow. So wonderful, great system. All right. Um, if you, the TWIP listener, would like a free trial, you can head over to squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. You don't need a credit card or anything. You can just uh, try it out, build a website, and if you decide, hey, I like this thing, you'll get 10% off when you enter the offer code TWIP, TWIP, at squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. All right, it's time for some Q&A. Every week, our producers scour the forums at thisweekinphoto.com forward slash forum to find the best questions for us to answer on the show. And here are some questions from this week that they dug up for us. Um, uh, Let's see. The first one is on sensor size. Joseph, you want to take this one? Sure. Uh, question's a bit lengthy here, but basically the question is asking, on a camera with an APS size sensor, um, with, given any particular lens, is that lens going to be faster than on a full-frame sensor? And more to the point on here, this person is asking whether they should be buying full-frame size lenses versus the smaller non-full-frame lenses. Um, and so basically what it comes down to, first of all, if you're talking about the smaller sensors like a micro four-thirds, then there's very few lenses that are not designed for that that you can actually attach to it. But let's say we're talking about something like a Canon or Nikon full-frame versus non-full-frame body. The advantage of buying the non 
uh, or rather the advantage of buying the full frame lenses, the normal lenses, if you will, is that they're forward compatible, right? If you decide later down the road that you want to buy a um, a full frame, full sensor, full size sensor body, then your lenses aren't going to become obsolete. And that's always you know nice to know. But if you really are never going to do that, then you know maybe you don't have to. However, the better quality lenses are by default going to be designed for the full frame sensors. So, you know, if you're going to be buying good quality gear and you really want to buy the best that you can uh, that you can afford, you probably are going to be looking at that full frame, normal, you know, regular size lenses anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's really what it comes down to. Um, the, he has a question here about uh, about wouldn't that extra light that's coming into the lens somehow be bouncing around inside the lens and affecting the image. Uh, the short answer there is no. The the insides of these lenses are all coated with you know, some light absorbing black hole material, <laughs> yeah. so that <laughs> so that the uh, the light, the extra light, if you will, any light that's bouncing off of the elements in there isn't going to affect the rest of your image. And keep in mind that just because all that light's coming into the lens, it doesn't necessarily have to get absorbed by the sensor it's just you know again getting absorbed by the black um just because uh, you know more light's coming into it it doesn't mean that twice the, as much light is hitting a smaller sensor it's just a smaller portion of that light the center of that light if you will it's like we talked about earlier the center of the lens is getting used not the entire lens but yeah. all that extra light isn't just dumping into uh, into that sensor yeah now liana you know i know you're you're not a pro shooter but i know you do shoot as much as you can or you shoot pretty often um and more so with your iphone 4 now that you have that what just just uh before we continue to the next question what are you shooting with like primarily right now when you when you're not using your iphone um i went to the canon g9 uh before that i was shooting just canon 30d and i just i don't feel like carrying it as much anymore and even the g9 now is just heavy compared to my iphone yeah yeah um, yeah it's funny because you're the reason i have my g9 so <laughs> <laughs> which I, hey. you know, and you know you're you're one of the main reasons i bought it so and nice I, and i haven't upgraded it because the g9 is still fine and now i have this other you know this camera phone that i use for it's always in my back pocket when, I, when i'm around see i agree with you that's why i haven't upgraded however the difference between frederick and i that many of you may, you may not know is that my backup camera is not a nikon d3 <laughs> okay well there's that you know but but just to, just to be clear that's that's one difference between you and i there are several others <laughs> sure yeah absolutely so, you know there's some obvious differences um so there's a there's the next question up um this is a pretty lengthy one in here but i'm gonna just narrow it down to one salient piece in here um fish to what how do you pronounce it fish to pre-records Fish Top Records, I think. Oh, there you go. There you go. Fish, <laughs> I want to say Fish to Pre-Records. <laughs> All right, Fish Top Records from outside Washington, D.C. Essentially, I'm, I'm going to boil the question down. He wants to know, what does the ASA setting do? Um, he was, in the beginning of the question, he was comparing the film Panatomic X back in the day, which was ASA 25 uh, and Tri-X ASA 400. You kind of knew what you were going to get when you shot with those and you knew why they, they were sensitive at 25 versus 400 um, because of the chemicals on the, uh, on the emulsion of the, the film itself. But now today you fast forward and you have these, these newfangled cameras that you can actually change the ASA or ISO setting from shot to shot. So what does this knob actually do? Joseph, I want to I I throw it at you first. I have my own answer to this, but I want to put it on you first. What do you think? 
Sure. Uh, part of the question is about film grain size and how the since the sensor itself isn't physically changing, that the film grain that we used to you know have uh, doesn't change, of course, as it did when you put different film uh, types in there. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, with the digital sensors, it just comes down to sensitivity. And the more sensitive you make the sensor, the noisier it is. And so what we you know used to call grain is now noise, and some people call it you know, digital grain, if you will. But it's just noise in the image. And the more sensitive that sensor is, or allowed to be, I should say, uh, the noisier it's going to be. But how do you, and, how do you how do you define sensitivity though? Because I think what what he was saying, Fish Top Records, um, or Fish Two Records, was, saying, <laughs> was is saying is that you know in if you look at if you look at film under a microscope, you'll see what the, these things in there that they call silver halides, which are silver particles that are that are sensitive to light. When you expose them, we're talking about black and white here. When you expose them to light, they and then they they be, they change physically. And when you ex- take that that exposed emulsion and dip it in specific chemistry, it turns the whatever was hit with light black, which gives you a negative, right? So, and the spacing between those silver halides represents the sensitivity of the sp- of the film. For example, if you had a piece of emulsion with with silver halides that were sprinkled on there kind of far apart, that would be a high ISO piece of film, which means when you shot it, it would take less light to expose it and get a better and get a get a decent late image in there. But then when you printed it, you'd see grain because the the halides were so far apart. Conversely, with Panatomic X or the the, the ISO twenty five, those silver halides are really really close together, making it a slower film. Um, but when you print it, you get a tighter, crisper image. That was the trade off that we used to have to make. So my question is, Joseph, with if you fast forward to today with like your Canon where you can just turn a knob and change the, the ISO, you're not changing the spacing between pixels or between the, these, you know, halides per se. What are you changing when you're changing sensitivity? Yeah, that's a question I would have had to dig into uh, a little bit of the science on Wikipedia before the show, I'm afraid. <laughs> I don't know I don't know what's physically happening. I what I do know is that the the sensor is more or less sensitive. How that actually happens I don't know, but the the higher sense more sensitive you make the sensor um, the more grainy it's going to get, and the more noisy, rather, it's going to get. If yeah. you have a, even if you shoot at low ISO, but you shoot a really long exposure, let's say that you shot a, a five-minute long exposure, you're going to start to see a lot of noise show up in there. And that's why most digital sensors, they recommend not doing exposures longer than 30 seconds, because you start to get um, a, a significant amount of noise showing up in there as the sensor heats up. And I'm sure that has a lot to do with it when you're cranking it up to a higher ISO. It's you know it's not physically heating up faster, but somehow the sensitivity in there is causing that same type of reaction, and you're getting that same kind of noise. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess it boils down to light is light, and less light is always gonna it's gonna be harder to render less light, regardless. And if if there's not a lot of light there, then you're gonna you know it'll interpolate and put noise in between where it thinks light should be. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. That's a, that's a good topic. We should we should do a blog post or something on that because that's uh, I would really like to know what's happening from you know putting on my my spinning propeller head hat on photography and light optics <laughs> and properties of physics of light. What happens? You know, how do you compare the film? You know, a film emulsion to a uh, digital SLR sensor. And I know one of the TWIP listeners is going to respond in the forums and give us a full-on six-paragraph explanation, so I'll just sit tight and wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, question number three. Uh, it's from T. Lawrence. 
also in the TWIP forums, he says, my question is regarding lines in photos. I know when shooting a horizon general... General composition rules dictate that it be straight. Or when shooting horizon, general or composition can't read today. Composition rules dictate that it should be straight. However, when there is no horizon and you have both horizontal and vertical lines, which is more important to keep straight? Um, This is this is an interesting question. Um, You know, my flippant answer is it depends. So, uh, but Joseph, when you're when you're shooting, you know, I know when you're on the road, you saw lots of vanishing point lines and lots of horizons out there. (laughs) What's what's important to keep keep straight if you're if you're shooting something? Is it is there a rule that says that it needs to be perfectly horizontal or what? Well, there's certainly no rule, but I would say that to his question of when you have both horizontal and vertical lines, which is more important, I would say probably most times it's going to be the vertical line. Um, and because of exactly the thing that you just mentioned, vanishing points, you, you get your perspective of of vertical distance and perspective of horizontal distance, you know, the how far away the horizon or whatever is from you. And unless you're shooting a horizon straight on and your your objective is to have a perfectly straight horizon line, chances are that the tree or the building or something else that's in that photo, you probably want that to be vertical and have the horizon line receding. That's probably going to look a little bit more natural. Mm-hmm. If the vertical lines tend to lean in or lean out, then the image ha- takes on a distortion that is usually not visually pleasing. So, again, there is no, you know, your first answer is the right answer. It depends. Yeah. But if you really had to pick one, if you're looking through the camera and going, well, which one should I make straight? I think that more times, more often than not, you're going to go with the vertical one. And I, I know just from personal experience, having done some shots where you're looking at them even later, looking at them in aperture or Lightroom, whatever, and you're going, oh, wait, it's not quite straight. Okay, I need to, I need to rotate this picture. I need to skew it a little bit. And then the little horizon lines pop up on the screen as you're rotating and you're going, wait, do I line it up with the horizon or line it up with the vertical? It usually turns out the vertical is the right way to go. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Leanna, I know you're, you're, you're shooting amateur stuff with your... And you know, and fun stuff with your iPhone. What do you what do you pay attention to? Like, if you're out, like you were earlier today um, on the beach surfing, and you want to snap a great shot, what what do you care about? I mean, is it is it compositionally? You know, and I know it's a broad question, but just compositionally, do you do you care about the horizon? Or are you mostly shooting detail close up shots, or what do you what are you doing? Yeah, like like you said, I think obviously it depends. Um, a, a lot of times, I'll look first at. I don't know that I. I don't really do a lot of landscape. I shouldn't say that. But a lot of times I look at the shape of whatever it is that I actually want somebody's eye to draw to. Mm -hmm. So if it is something, say, a row of flowers versus um, a column of flowers, so something going uh, horizontal versus vertical, I might look at that. Um, So somebody else might look at my picture and say something like, you know, the, the vanishing point is kind of off because I actually wouldn't see that. I would look because for me, I'd want to say, you know, hey, draw your eye to this row of flowers and hopefully that would happen and somebody wouldn't see that funky looking vanishing point. But yeah, I usually go with the shape of whatever it is that I'm, I know that's pretty general, but that's kind of what seems to have worked. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting when you look at this stuff. I mean, because it's, there, there really are no rules. I mean, there are some basic rules of that help you get better pictures and, and compositionally, you know, when we talk about the rule of thirds and vanishing point and, you know, things like that, that help you create and draw attention to your subject, which is the, you know, kind of the main point of all this, whether it's a, your subject is a, a landscape or if your subject is a person, 
the uh, one of the main ideas of having pleasant composition is to draw attention to your subject in a pleasing sort of way and draw the eye in there. So, you know, it all depends. I, you know, I think it, it depends on what you're shooting because every shot, even if you take a step to the left, is going to be different. So you can't really put, you know, box everything into one little corral. All right, guys, it is time for our picks of the week. Um, every week we, uh, we let the guests and the hosts and everyone else pick something. Um, it can be software, it can be hardware, it could be gear, a workshop, whatever, as long as it's photography related. And Liana, since you are the guest of honor here, you haven't been on the show in a while. Um, you're going to go first. Here you go. Wonderful. Thanks. 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 I hear, wait, hold on. I got to get out from <laughs> under this bus. I got to get out from under the bus. Uh, <laughs> I tend to do that from time to time. Watch out for falling buses. <laughs> no, I actually have something. Um, there's, so because I do shoot generally with my point and shoot, even when I shot with my uh, 30D, I still like to do, I still like to take shots on a tripod. Um, and, a lot of times I'll go and shoot by myself and I might need something like a little reflector and I might not be able to hold it out on my own. So I actually have something that a company called Wimberly makes and it's called the clamp. Mm. And one end of it is like, uh, I think it's a super clamp and it uh, attaches to the leg of a tripod. And then it's got like an, uh, what is that called? Like an articulating arm on it. It, it, it. It's like in segments so you can kind of move it however you need to move it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a, a Joby Gorilla Pod. Yeah. And at the other end, there's like a, a clip for lack of better way to describe it, it's like a large um, like binder clip that a lot of times I'll use to hold a reflector for me um, so that I can take a photo and not have to worry about that reflector. Or if I'm trying to take a macro of a flower and there's another flower in the way, sometimes I'll put that uh, clip on a flower that might be in the way to pull it out of the way so I can take the photograph. But it's really handy and it's really lightweight. Um, and the company is called Wimberly. Um, and it fits... The tripod that I use, it's kind of a small one, but uh, it says that it fits any tripod leg that's 20, 23 to 35 millimeters in diameter. I think that's kind of a general, you know, you're not carrying anything like super heavy, like you're not doing, carrying a, you know, four to 600 lens and it's a, a smaller, probably smaller grade tripod. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Perfect pick. See, you weren't under the bus. You were, you Thanks. were, you were on the bus. Because <laughs> I thought you were going to see. That's what I'm supposed to be. <laughs> All right. Uh, Joseph, what's your, what's your pick of the week? I'm going to switch mine. I like this plant thing. I'm going to have to buy one. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yay. All right. So my, yay. No, my pick of the week, um, this is a low pro bag and actually two different bags from low pro. Now in disclosure, full disclosure, low pro sent me a couple of bags to try out and I took them on this little road trip of mine and really have fallen off with both of these. So I'm kind of hoping they don't want them back. Um, but the first one is the pro runner X four fifty, And that is a larger version of the three fifty, which is the like international carry on everywhere you go bag. And it's a backpack, basically a backpack with rollers and, and a handle on it. Uh, the 450, the larger one, domestic carry-on, international is a little bit questionable. Um, it has a laptop pouch in it that you can remove. So once you remove that, in theory, it goes down to international size. We will find out soon enough when I take this thing international. But it's just a really well-designed bag, very comfortable. Very The, the wheels are great. The handle works great and makes a great way to carry around a lot of gear without having to uh, you know, actually throw it on your back everywhere you go. And then the second bag is called the Classified Sling 220AW. And this is a sling bag, so something that's just got a single strap that goes over your chest, and you can swing it around or sling it around 
um, around your side to bring it in front of you so you can access all the gear in there. And the zipper, the main pouch, uh, or the right of the main access point is actually on the side of the bag. So when you slide it around, that side becomes the top, and that's how you get into your gear. And that particular one, the 220, will actually carry your 15-inch laptop as well. It carries a significant amount of gear, and they have various sizes of these that you can, uh, you know, you can get the right one that fits what you need. But this will carry my full-size DSLR uh, as well, the 450, of course. And I found both of them to be very, very handy, very useful. I even took the 220, the sling bag, on a little hike with me in Arizona and some very intense morning heat you know it gets to be 100 degrees very early in phoenix this time of year that's not right that's just not right <laughs> it's just not right <laughs> and uh and strap that on and it has a little waist um uh, you know waist what do you call it uh strap that wraps around just to kind of secure it and take some of the weight off your shoulder mm-hmm. and i liked it i like the lust they're both really good so i plan on writing up a little bit of a review for these and sticking them up on the website very cool awesome yeah definitely all right, uh, and my pick is so we we you know been on this kick. We've been talking about iPhone photography. I know people are probably rolling their eyes because you know you talk about iPhone stuff too much, but you know this is this is pertinent because you know we talk about how people are doing some pretty serious photography now with iPhones, or it's particularly the iPhone four. In fact, I think it was last month's issue of MacWorld magazine was a photo of an iPhone shot with an iPhone. Um, and and the cover shot was done that way. So, you know, and I, I think the iPhone 4, the camera in there represents, like we were saying before, a lot of the, or the ability to, you know, be free and be able to shoot things from wherever you are with and not have the bulk of carrying a digital SLR with you or even a G9 size camera point and shoot with you. Uh, but one of the issues has been, uh, for me at least, has been, yeah, I like it, but like if I'm shooting video with it, it's always shaky. Uh, because just of the dynamics of it, you know, it's a little tiny lens, it's wide and it's going to be shaky and I drink a lot of coffee. So there's there's that. Um, but what's the solution to that? The solution is always is to put your camera on a tripod. If you're shooting things where you want things to be in the same spot or you want that, that locked down crisp feel problem with the iphone 4 is there is no tripod or tripod mount on there until now um there there's a bunch of these out there now little little slip-ons for your iphone that will essentially give it the little tripod socket on the bottom so that you can screw it to any tripod so i found one and ordered one um uh and i'll put a link to it in the blog post for this but it's uh it i'll actually link to the ebay article where i bought it from and it uh, is like 13 14 bucks and it's a little piece of plastic that has a metal tripod socket on it shaped like a u you slip your iphone into it and you know put it on a tripod you know i've got mine on a gorilla pod and now i can shoot hd video wherever i am and it's locked down so it looks much more professional than just kind of handheld shaky you know uh you know cop style video uh, but it's it's really nice to have that. And it's really nice to take one of those, you know, those little tripods that you buy in a camera store or wherever that are those little mini tripods. You could just keep one of those in your computer bag or in your iPad bag or whatever, you know, with you and have it attached so that wherever you are, you can lock the camera down and shoot some pretty decent video. So I would definitely check that out. It's an iPhone 4G uh, tripod camera adapter. So pretty cool. And it's a uh, it's only 14 bucks. All right, uh, it's time for the photo mission. Let's roll through this. Um, every week we challenge our listeners to challenge themselves photographically, and each week, along with being recognized on the show, um, we, you know, sort of, if, if the person wins, they might get a prize kind of thing. But this week's mission was titled Annoying. 
annoying. And annoyingly, there are only a handful of entries, so we're extending this mission for another week. So there's only, there's, like, check, check the This Week in Photo forums for the photo mission, and you'll see what's been entered so far. And if you want to enter, definitely go ahead and enter, and we'll, uh, we'll pick a winner next week for this. So, guys, uh, Liana, any, any tips for the photographers out there that are having trouble being inspired to be annoying? Um, look at, uh, go online. I, I do a lot of my, I look on Flickr, I look on iStock, I look on a lot of different stock sites. I, I get my inspiration from looking at other people's photos, mm-hmm. because that's a tough one. Annoying is a little bit tough, I think. Yeah, it is. On purpose. You can't, you can't, yeah. can't have everything easy, like red, you know, it's gotta, you, gotta, <laughs> you gotta have something challenging in here, you know, annoying no, and challenging. Great. Now, Joseph, what do you, what do you think about that? What, any tips for folks that are having problems getting inspired to be, you know, to shoot annoying photographs? Well, you know, I think that Leon's tip of just, you know, looking online, do a little quick Google, go to some uh, uh, stock sites or whatever is a really good way to get inspiration. Um, but don't, you know, think outside of the box. Don't take it quite so literally. Um, don't necessarily take a picture of something that is annoying. Maybe you have to be the annoying person getting the photo that you're getting. I don't know. There's there's different ways to look at it. Um, there's always a couple of different perspectives to be played with here. So try and think outside of the box. Try and get clever. And just because a competition is difficult and you don't have an easy answer, that usually is you know, what makes it a better competition. If it was easy, then everybody would have done it. So try and come up with something clever. Very good words from Joseph. All right. Cool. All right, guys. We're at the end of the show. Joseph, where can folks find you online? Well, since we were talking about the photo tour that I did, let's uh, excuse me, let's have people head on over to confessionsofatravelljunkie.com and you can follow me on Twitter at travel underscore junkie. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Good shots there. And Liana, where where is your online presence? Uh, I am on Twitter as well and it's uh, FitTorrent on Twitter. For the geeks out there, it's BitTorrent but F like fitness. Uh, and then also on my blog and I blog mostly about fitness but uh, occasionally I'll put up photos at FitTorrent.net. Awesome. Very cool. Thank you. And to keep you up with everything up to date with everything in the TWIP universe, you can just head over to thisweekinphoto.com. There you'll find links to our Facebook fan page, our Twitter account, and more. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can check out my blog at frederickvan.com or follow me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash frederickvan. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. Bandwidth or TWIP is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com and Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash TWIP and Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to Squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. This Week in Photo is also supported by the TWIP podcast app for the iPhone and iPod Touch. It's available on iTunes. For more information, head over to thisweekinphoto.com. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production produced by Suzanne Llewellyn. With technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. The show's content contributor is Eric Horton.